Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 263, recorded December 15th, 2021, and I'm Brian Aachen. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Lais Carvalho. Welcome, Lais. Um, uh, before we jump jump in, could you tell us who you are? Absolutely. Uh, so first of all, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the invite. And uh, so my name is Lais Carvalho, and I'm a developer advocate for Quantsite. And I also do a little bit of um, voluntary work for Python Ireland and a few other Python things around the, the sphere. Nice. Cool. Uh, that, that sounds really fun. The, uh, the company you work for, I'm not familiar with it. What do you guys do there? It sounds a little bit like um, maybe quant finance, maybe some ML stuff. Uh, yeah, so we do everything. Uh, so Quantsite is a consultancy company. Um, but we do, so basically our CEO is one of the, the uh, main guys uh, behind NumPy. Um, mm. And yeah, basically we do consultancy and everything you need. Yeah, sounds fun. Brian, you know what else is fun? What is fun? Websites. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if you think about websites, what, what web framework in Python is used more than Django? Uh, Flask, maybe maybe, maybe Flask. Flask. I think they're right, right on the boundary. But I, certainly, Django is at the top. And I hear so many stories from people who say they got into Python not because they love Python, but because they wanted to do Django. And I even had a guest recently describe themselves as a Django developer who learned Python because they just wanted. They came for the Django and they stayed for Python, uh, which is cool. So Django has been on a bit of a terror lately in terms of its speed. So I actually went back and looked. If you look at uh, the release for Django 1, that was in May 2010. I think it came out before then, but that's as far as the release history goes back in dates. But So 1.0 was in 2010. Seven years later, 2.0 came out in 2017. It seems like that just happened. Time's flying. Yeah. And then in 2020, three years after 2 was 3. And then now we have Django 4.0. So it's going seven years, three years, one years, you know, who knows? So do we get like five in March? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe. But it's it's cool. Django 4 is out. It's not a, a super huge release in terms of what's covered, but some of the highlights over there include, I think I mentioned this, that it was coming, but now it is here, the new Redis cache back in. So there've been previously ways to plug and or use Redis as a cache backend inside of Django. But now it's just, you just use Django's caching implementation and you tell it, by the way, here's the connection string to Redis. And that happens. So that's pretty nice. cool, right? Yeah. Another thing that Django does for you is it will render forms and stuff based on um, various things like models and whatnot. And so they've changed how that works to ease customizations of forms and form sets and errorless. They are now rendered using the template engine. So you have more control over how forms and stuff look and some changes to do with the time zone as well. It's now using Python's time zone. So I guess it used a different one before. I never really paid that much attention to which time zone it used. But uh, so with the release of four, 3.2 is now reached the end of mainstream support which is interesting. And Liza, what you're going to talk about later, actually, this is relevant as well, right? I know yes. uh, the, the thing you're covering talks about Django and versions and upgrades and so on. So that's it. Django 3.2 is a long-term support release, so it will receive security fixes until April 24, but there's no more features coming to 3.2. All the new features and improvements and whatnot are going into 4.0. 
So that's pretty cool. And let's see if you go over the release notes. It now supports only Python 3.8 to 3.10, which I think is wow. pretty cool. That's interesting. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, that's that's no no messing around, right? They're like, nope, we spent too long supporting 2.7. <laughs> We're not doing that anymore, right? Yeah, I think most most uh, frameworks are not supporting 2 anymore. There's a lot still supporting 3.7, though, so it's interesting that 3.7 is out as well. Yeah, well, they've got the 3.2.1 that still supports that if you want to kind of be on the... A slow burn. Let's see what else. There's a few things. I'm not going to go through it. I guess one more highlight maybe is you can create composite indexes really easily with the unique constraint. So you can have a uniqueness constraint that has the first name and the last name. So you could have the same first name or the same last name as somebody in the database, but not the same first and last name. That's pretty interesting. They upgraded the password hasher to script. I have no idea what the script password hasher is, but it's more secure than the PB. KDF2 hashing algorithm. You you never want those to be too easy because if you can brute force guess them, that's bad news. However, if you want to be using this better password hasher, you have to enable it because it requires open SSL 1.1 or higher on the system. And they don't assume that you have that, right? So you've got to basically do some work to make that happen. And then there's a bunch of things about what was added, what was deprecated. And again, sort of leading ahead, there's some backwards incompatible changes, things that are breaking changes. And there's also deprecation of some features that were not previously deprecated. So you want to be on top of that as well. So Django 4. Yeah, nice. we're going to get five. We're going to get Django 5 in March or something, I'm guessing, right, Brian? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and can we take a moment to just say thank you for the amazing documentation that Django has, like, all over? It's so good. Like, I'm, I'm a newbie. And every time I open, I don't really use Django that much, but every time I open their documentation, like sometimes I actually use their documentation to just check stuff about um, the web development because it's just so, so good. So yeah, thank awesome. you very much, maintainers of Django documentation, because it's really, really good. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Sam Morley on the audience says, I'm always impressed by how much Django managed to cram into each release. Indeed. And Mark Pender says, howdy all from Ireland. Hello. Nice. <laughs> right on. Cool, cool. All right. Brian, what do you got? I got Python Minifier. Actually, so this was um this was a suggestion from Lance Reinsmith. So thanks, Lance, for sending it up. But he also sent some reasons. My first reaction was, we don't need a minifier for Python. What's up? Uh what is this isn't Java or something. So um, but he he gave a couple of reasons. Uh the docs for uh minifier um have have this this sort of convoluted reason um apparently aws cloud formation i don't know any of the details of this but aws cloud formation templates can have aws lambda functions source code embedded in them but only if they're 4k or less uh so a small amount of code so that's one of the reasons why he wrote this package um lance uh the person that sent it in um said his reason for using it is um adafruit boards which is a cool idea. Um, I didn't think about that with, with uh, like uh, you know, Adafruit boards or in Circuit Python. You um, you've got less space to work with, so uh, minifying your code might be a good idea. That's pretty cool, decent idea. So uh, what are, what does this do? It, it's this this like there's an example on the page of just normal Python code. It's maybe not the best Python code, but normal-ish. 
And then it replaces it with like, you know, replaces the variable names with A, B, C, things like that. Uh, to, you know, some of your typical um, uh, renaming things. So it has like a whole bunch of different um, uh, techniques oh, wow. that it uses. Um, I'm going to go to the docs. Um, has a combines the imports. So instead of on multiple lines, you just combine them all together, saves a little space, uh, removes passes, which is interesting. It removes them to just assigns it to, to zero, uh, in a function. That's interesting. I didn't know you could do that. Um, <laughs> hoist literals. That's an interesting thing. And that's just, if you, if you've got a literal, that's, uh, a bunch of different places, it just defines a variable and defines it at the top. Kind of, kind of interesting. Um, it uses a lot of semicolons. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, remove annotations. So type annotations, you probably don't need at runtime for something like this. So it can remove them, uh, local renaming, uh, a whole bunch of stuff to, to, and, you know, uh, re renaming globals and literals. And sometimes you like, if, you, if it's an API or if something else is using it, you don't want to rename the globals cause those are, those are the API. So you, you can turn any or all of this stuff off. Um, I guess you wouldn't turn all of it off because why would you use it? But you can turn off stuff that doesn't work. So I would suggest if you're using Minify, uh, test your code, of course, and uh, remove what you need. Um, and I actually, for something like a Circuit Python and stuff like this, this might be an interesting idea. And I'm curious. I, um, let let me put out another idea about where it may be useful. Okay. Can you go back to the example? So just that code sample you had. Yeah. So if you look at it, one of the things you often have to do, and I'm not suggesting this is really a good idea, but it, it could be applied this way. <laughs> One of the things you have to do if you want to ship your Python code around to be used with places is to share your source code, right? And sure, you could send a PYC file, but it's basically the same thing, right? Yeah. So what about if you go in here and uh, run this against something that you want just a little bit more obfuscation? You don't want people poking around it. That definitely looks less easy to read to me. Yeah. I mean, it, it could go farther, right? It could rename, rename like create certain and whatnot, but maybe those are like standard library things. But certainly if you're trying to obfuscate your code as well, there could be a some sort of use case there, although it's not super obfuscated. So yeah, it seems like that was a Java thing. I, I don't even know if they do that anymore, obfuscators. But Yeah, I don't know. I haven't been in that world for a long time either. Uh, but. It might help also if you're playing uh, golf, uh, you know, coding golf. Um, you know, just, just write one of these. <laughs> yeah, indeed. What is coding goals? So, sounds like a, uh, a thing that black should have, maybe black. Yeah. <laughs> That's a terrible idea. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, Liza, I don't know what coding golf is either. Uh, really? Okay, so you have like a coding... I just go uh, to the driving range. I don't actually do any more things with golf, so I'm, I'm not very uh, nice with it. <laughs> coding oh, wait, golf no, is like the, the, the lowest score is the best, right, in golf. So um it's a uh, coding challenges that you uh solve with the minimal characters so um uh, minimal lines of code minimal minimal characters um and it's a uh, yeah that's what coding golf is so you just cool. show the zen of python out of the window and at that <laughs> exactly <stage it's> just... <laughs> it's it's not easy to read code but okay <laughs> got it <laughs> all right sounds fair <laughs> may the best man win and the best person <laughs> win sorry yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Also, one of the things it does is that it doesn't advertise is it throws away all your spaces and replaces them with tabs. Um, and uh, Oh, interesting. Yeah, it does look very tab filled in the. In well, it the makes sense. You know, four, yeah. four spaces versus one tab. It's a, a 4x reduction right there. So, yep. yeah. Uh, Sam says, Elias, you're, 
You're in for a treat. Code Golf Stack Exchange is fascinating. <laughs> I can only <laughs> imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Well, your topic is up next. This is the one I was alluding to earlier, talking about Django and support for old things and so on. Yes. Yes, indeed. I thank you so much for the tip as well. So then this is, it's time to stop using Python 3.6. So in one week and one day, um, Python is dropping support for well Python 3.6. So there's not going to be any more releases after that. Um, so basically, well, you should update Python. Um, if you are using Ubuntu, then you can say, well, I don't really have to update right now because well, we, Ubuntu has um, long time support, um, but it doesn't necessarily work like that because, well, the Python dev team is not going to support your um, Python 3.6 anymore, which basically means exactly. that... But that's what we were just talking about with Django, right? Like just because you might be on an LTS version of Ubuntu that will still let you use 3.6, well, you're going to have to give up all the new libraries like so long to Django 4.0 and probably fast API and all the things, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. So you have your dependencies that are going to need um, to be updated anyhow. So you should update. But then I have a question. So newbie here. Um, I looked around when we were preparing the notes for the show. I looked around and I tried to, because I'm using 3.7, so I'm still okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I was looking. I wanted to try the 3.10 new stuff because I listened to a few podcasts ago and you're talking about the wonders of Python 3.10. And I was like, okay, so let's update. But then I couldn't find the best way to update from 3.7 or let's say 3.6 um, to 3.10. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw some people mm -hmm. saying that it would be better to just update um, gradually. So go from 3.6, 3.7, 3.8, 3.9, and then 3.10, because you could fix the dependencies easier like that. But then some other people just say, just go straight to the version you want and then just deal with the problems when you get there. Just rip the bandaid off. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah? I'm with Brian too. Go as far as ahead as you can and then see if it works. All right. So just, just go 3.10 straight away. Okay. Cool. Uh, that's what I would say. But the question is still open. How do you do that? <laughs> right? Um, it depends, I think, on what OS you're on. For example, on Ubuntu, 3.9 is really about as far as you're going to get without some jumping around. Like that's the latest Python 3 that it'll give you. On Mac, you only have two. So you got to install something, but you could you know, download the installer from python.org. You could homebrew it or you could do other things. Uh, you could do PyEnv like Brandon Brainer out in the audience is suggesting. I got started with PyEnv. It makes this kind of thing trivial, true, except for I can't get it to work on my Mac. Maybe it's an M1 thing or an Apple Silicon thing, but it just won't install anything. So it's it's not trivial for me, but when it works, you can just say Py, PyEnv, give me 3.6. You can be very specific, like give me Py, Python 3.11 RC2. <laughs> I want that one. And it'll just, it'll put them all side by side. So, okay. I, mate, what do you think, Brian? I, I think I, I'm on PyEnv now, um, but it's because I test a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things. Um, for normal people yeah. that have an application and they just want to upgrade. Um, I say, unless you're on Ubuntu or Linux, um, I say just go to python.org and download the latest one and install it. 
yeah, it works totally on reasonable. Windows and Mac usually. On Windows, there, there's the Windows uh, installer. You can go to the Windows Store. That works. Um, but uh, but the Python.org one works good too. So usually, yeah. All right. Yeah, indeed. Cool. So I'll try, and I'll let you know how it goes on Twitter. <laughs> right on. It's the best I can Give do. Give us a report of what you've made, found <laughs> yes. to work. Because I threw the question on, on Twitter as well. And then I got a bunch of people saying, no, don't go 310 yet. It's not great for production. Go 39. And there are people just saying, no, just rip the Band-Aid as you did. Mark. Yeah. So, okay. The, the, the Aachen, uh, Aachen doctrine. Yes. I mean, I only support <laughs> little tiny projects though. So um, in Python, I support big things in C++. But I would uh, run your tests, you know, or, you know, upgrade, run the tests, make sure everything works. Yeah. Oh, your conversation's got a whole bunch of stuff going off in the audience here. Alvaro says, NumPy is dropping support for 3.7 sometime this month, so that should push the data science community, community to update. And then um, also on Ubuntu, you can install the Dead Snakes PPA, and you'll get uh, now versions of the latest version of Python. Okay, that's interesting. Yes, yeah? I saw the Dead Snakes PPA. Yes, indeed. And I saw that in Ubuntu, that's really easy to do it. But uh, still, you can find tutorials saying go gradually. And then in other yeah. tutorials, it's saying yeah, just, yeah. just go straight in. So yeah, Sam, uh, Sam says just compile from source every time. That's what I do. That's what I'm doing in production. <laughs> but I'm doing homebrew on my Mac. All right. Maybe maybe that's enough how to get the latest version of Python. <laughs> but you were going to make a comment about Java. Is that right? Oh, yes. Yes, that's true. So, because um, I saw, uh, I was doing a little bit of research for this, and then um, there was a little bit of um, a discussion of the, the third-party third libraries and the frameworks that will drop support for 3.6, soon enough, as Alvaro just mentioned. Uh, so then I saw on Twitter, uh, someone mentioning, let me put it here, that like using the Java, the new log4j um, problem, let's, let's put it like that. Um, <laughs> log as, for shell, it's <laughs> so bad. Yeah, it's just so yes. bad. Uh, yeah, so using it as an example uh, for how, like, you should upgrade your version, the version of the, the, the programming language you're using. Uh, and then they talk about... Um, yeah, so they, they say that you should upgrade as soon as you can. Yeah, what an interesting example they gave because this log for shell thing that I'm going to actually talk about a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But the problem is you have to upgrade log for j to a patched version. The patched version only works on Java 8. So if you've been dragging your feet in a sense and staying on an old version of Java, well, now all of a sudden it's not just replace a library. It's completely upgrade the Java you're running on. And if you were dragging your feet that hard, there's probably some kind of reason that it's a pain and not well-maintained or something. And so instead of just going, oh, we got to quick fix this problem because it's a super, a super big deal. It's now all of a sudden you've got to do a major upgrade when you weren't planning on it, right? That's bad. Yeah. Uh, and then you have to we have this meme of oh, this, this <laughs> wonderful <You're>, meme. <laughs> your, your next task, this is from the Squid Game, your next yes. task is to figure out which applications in your organization is using Log4j. <laughs> you have 10 minutes. <laughs> Go. <laughs> oh, that's good. I didn't uh, catch the meme. Yes. So then I think, uh, Michael, it's you now? It is. It is. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks for, for highlighting that article. That's a good one by uh, Itamar Trower Churning. Yes. Uh, okay. So what do I got next here? Us, not Django, but something fun. 
We just had what was probably the most contentious Formula One season in 10 years at least. And one of the most wild ones for sure. The championship was decided on the final lap of the final race. <laughs> like literally the two people who were contending for it, uh, Hamilton and Verstappen, they were literally tied on points going into the final one. So, and the final move was done in the final lap. So I wanted to highlight this article here called How to Visualize the Formula One Championship in Python Using the Airgassed API in Seaborn. So for people who are in data science, I know if you're learning it, one of the challenges I have of learning those tools is I don't have a great professional need for them. I don't don't use that kind of stuff to analyze data that I work with that frequently. So my chance to learn Seaborn, for example, it's pretty limited. So finding some example or some fun project you can do, that turns out to be super important. So I thought I'd pull this up as something people could do to learn to play with this kind of data. Now, if you're not yet into uh, this stuff, check out the, uh, the Drive to Survive Season 3. Uh, I think I got the wrong link here, but I'll, I put the trailer to it in, um, in the show notes. So Netflix did a great series that is really good for people to just sort of get into it. And also there's like an eight-minute highlight of the last race, which was absolutely crazy. But what I want to talk about is some cool stuff that Jasper just goes by Jasper, no last name, over on Medium. So introduces this thing called the Airgast API, which if you go over there, it's looking a little old school, but not very, how do you say, not very restful, for example. So for example, you can come over and we could get uh, like details about the third race of the 2008 season by just going API F1 2008-3, and it's going to come back with, well, a series of tables which is not necessarily that useful. Uh, and I thought the way you get the JSON, you might do like an accept application slash JSON type and not HTML or something, but no, you, you say three dot JSON and that gives you the API there. So that's pretty cool. And you come through here and basically they talk about how to use pandas, numpies, Seaborn, and that API to just build some cool graphs that actually show you the position of all the drivers across the entire season. Right, so if you want to build this picture, you see right at the top of the article, and play around with that data from that that API, then this is the way to do it. Uh, one other thing that's pretty interesting from this article that I had no idea about is over on PyPI, we have Fast F1 as a package, which is a wrapper library for F1 data and telemetry APIs uh, with additional data processing capabilities. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so you go down here and like they'll show you how to build this really cool graph of um, like lap by lap the times the various drivers you can see in the beginning. Like there's all sorts of chaos because there's people jockeying for position. The cars are heavy; they're full of fuel, so they go slower. You can sort of see as as things spread out, as the cars lighten up and stuff because they burn off 100 kilograms of fuel, then they all kind of get faster and better time. So you can get like cool graphs and exploration of all this stuff here. And the way you do it is really interesting is you just go over to this fast F1 and you enable the cache because it downloads some stuff and you don't want to have to download it twice. You can say, give me this season, this Grand Prix, give me the race details, load up the laps, and then you can start just working with the data in this really interesting way. So if I was into data science and I wanted to learn some stuff, this might be a really cool real world data set that you can play with. What do y'all think? I like it. I, I think I might actually try to know more about Formula One just so that I can talk with Anthony more. 
This <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Anthony Shaw's a big fan. Uh, yeah, indeed. As am I these days. It's it's a lot of fun. It was really a cool season this year. And uh, yeah, check out the highlights from the last race. It was absolutely off the hook. Lies, what do you what do you think of the, in terms of uh, a data science project here? A data science project, wonderful. Like especially if you actually like that stuff. I have no knowledge on that one. I actually worked for a company. That was like the, the I think the, the founders of the company were in love with F1 and that's how they got together to found the company. And uh-huh. I got to talk to them uh, and oh, like a certain one specific <laughs> circumstance. It was like, oh, you like F1. That's awesome. Uh, I know nothing about it. So please enlighten me. <laughs> that was if it. you're interested, check out the Netflix Drive to Survive series. That's that's the easy way in. It's lots of drama, not like the boring sort of 30 minutes in between the things that actually happen. Version. Okay. Yeah. What some of the people from the US don't understand is that they can turn in two directions. That's odd. <laughs> so odd. However, Brian, just before we're off this, the US Grand Prix for the first time, I think, was the most attended race ever, certainly for F1, but maybe ever, they had 400,000 attendees in Austin, Texas this year. Like wow. that's, so apparently it's becoming a thing, like soccer became a thing in the US when it didn't used to be, and now it, it is. Uh, I think this is as well. Yeah. All right. Alvaro also says, uh, interesting uh, about interesting libraries. Last week I found DuckDB, super interesting for data science as well. Yeah, definitely. We've only touched a few, uh, on that a little bit, but yeah, it's a great one. Yeah. DuckDB is like a new database, like, I don't know, CockroachDB? Uh, a different, but I believe okay. it has integration with like pandas and stuff. Um, oh. If I if I recall correctly, I think so. I have to I have to look it up. But yeah, cool. I'll, I'll do some real time follow up. But Brian, okay, tell us about in in B dime in B dime. So um, a another listener suggestion, Henrik Finsberg, cool last name. Uh, he he said uh, we recently covered Jute uh, or Jut Jupiter Notebook. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Jupiter Notebook Terminal Viewer. We covered that in episode 258. Um, he's correct. But he said, hey, you should check out MB Dime so, um, because it's been around for a long time. And it does something similar. So I definitely did. And I think this is a really cool uh, a cool set of tools. So we've got, um, not only does it do an MB show, which does a... Um, right, that, that's the Jute equivalent is the MB show, which yeah. is cool. Yeah, but it's um this is a set of tools that is around the needs for uh diffing and merging notebooks. So like if you're keeping notebooks in a git repo, um you'll have to do things like this. Um and so one of the uh it's got a bunch of tools. It's got diff, it's got merge, it's got diff web so you can have a rich rendered diff um note diff of the notebook and uh nb merge web, so a web a three-way web-based merge of notebook tools. Um, this just looks really cool and I uh, definitely think it's worth checking out if you if you work with notebooks and work with teams, you need to do things like this. So Oh yeah, this looks great. Yeah, diffing and merging notebooks is tricky for sure because the actual on disk representation is basically a JSON document and then it Im- embeds the output in there as well. Right. So if you ran it against live data and you got some output and you run it again, of course, that's going to be different. But that's a, you know, straight get that's a merge conflict. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'd be interested to know how they deal with that. I haven't, I haven't looked through this, but you yeah, probably it looks like to... it understands the the cells and then just the cells or something along those lines. Yeah, probably. So, yeah, anyway. that's super cool. Yeah, this is a great one. Small. Thanks for the recommendation as well. All right. 
Vice, you're up next. Yes. Uh, so we found out. Oh, so first of all, this is a recommendation from Fridolin. Uh, he works. He's a software developer at Red Hat. So thank you very much for the suggestion. Um, and this is Project Dot. So basically, uh, this is an open source cloud-based Python dependency resolver. So we all know that PyPy just set, just um, launched a new um, dependency resolver. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a big deal. There were some breaking changes to pip and stuff like that, but yeah. Yes, and well, show the first stone who never had uh, dependency resolving issues with pip. Uh, <laughs> I've spent so much time like, okay, so it's not this library, it's this other one. No, it's not this version, it's this other one. So this um, project task basically comes to solve this issue and it uses reinforcement learning uh, to solve these dependency issues. So basically, from what I understood, um, it, it's a smarter pip. So basically, it uses a few inputs from the developer. Um, such as like um, the speed of the execution of the code and if there was any any errors and your hard drive version, et cetera. Um, yeah, you, it's not just what version do you want, like greater than 2.1, but you could say, I would like one that's relatively stable or mm -hmm. I would prefer security over recency or something along those lines. So there's a lot of different mm -hmm. inputs to this machine learning model that then will give you the result of like pip install a thing. Yes, and then it pre-computes this this whole dependency information. It puts in a database, and then it just keeps track on it uh, of it. And then uh, the logs that result from like actually installing your the dependencies of that environment, uh, then are used to uh, go into the, as input into that reinforcement learning um, algorithm, and they use that then to query future resolutions. So basically, just make the whole process of dependency resolving um, much faster and much easier um yeah it, it it sounds like a great thing and i tried testing but um well i got <laughs> i got into a little bit of an issue with my python versions i was like oh I, i'll deal with all of this later <laughs> yeah know? exactly can you scroll down to the code sample where it's talking about tamos or thamos i don't remember the term exactly it's a little further down it's like a code call out uh, keep going, keep yes, going. Up, up a little bit right there. So yes. yeah, so the way you can use it is you pip install this Thamos thing, and then you configure environment, and then you add dependencies with some suggested version, like approximately Flask one, and then you ask it to advise you on your current setup, and it'll it'll go through and it actually analyzes the code and does a whole bunch of stuff, and then it will even um, uh, it'll give you some information. I don't remember exactly all the details of what it would suggest but it'll give you information about the various dependencies that you have installed and so on so and also cool. give you suggestions on like hardware and os versions that you should be using and yeah. it's 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 quite smart i thought yeah. it was quite interesting and it's in beta phase uh so if everyone there, anyone that is listening would like to try it and then maybe just uh, give some feedback back to Red Hat there. They'll be very, very, very happy to hear from the community as well. Because it's an open source project. So please collaborate. Yeah, check it out. It looks like it might have something to do with OpenStack and their whole cloud story over there as well. Uh, although I don't believe it explicitly said it. It doesn't seem to be tied to it, but it seems maybe motivated by that as well. So yeah, cool. That's a, that's a good one. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Brian, some real-time feedback here. 
Uh, so we covered this article, Efficient SQL with, on Pandas with DuckDB. And the, the, one of the cool things you could do is create a Pandas data frame and then do uh, select queries on top of the data frame. Um, That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, for example, remember you have like a local variable and you say the name of the local variable in the query and it like reaches into the, the call stack and grabs that out of the context and, and then works with it. So, yeah. Anyway, this is one of the data science-y things. Nice. Yep. Fine. Brian, is that it for all of our items? I think it is. Yeah. I think you might be right. Well, what extra? about the extras? You got any? I do. Actually, nice timing for today. So, um, Pragmatic Bookshelf, uh, they're the publishers of the PyTest book. They're running a sale, uh, actually 12 days of Christmas sale. So every every day is something different. You don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But today, my my book is part of it. So it's, uh, nice. you have enter a promo code and you get uh, $50, 50% off $50 spend. So you ought to order a couple books because they're not that expensive. Uh, but anyway, it's pretty cool. Cool, yeah. Hopefully that does well. Lies, how about you? Got anything extra you want to give a quick shout out to while we're here? Oh, yes, of course. So uh, I am a volunteer for Python Ireland. And Python Ireland has a speaker's coaching session uh, happening on the 22nd of January. So it's basically re-offering uh, for people that would like to be a pro on giving talks. We're offering a workshop. It's the entire day. And uh, you need to say that you need to just like give us your words that you're going to give us a talk as like a practice thing um but it's quite a, it's a very interesting um workshop thing and if you would like to be part of it uh just go into the meetup.com slash python ireland and it's there so again it's the 22nd of january yeah that's a cool uh, service cool. i guess you would call it a, a cool option for speakers because Speaking is one of those things that really can open doors and help get you connected, but it's also super stressful. The very first time you do it is in front of the audience and it's being broadcast. And yeah. also like the, the tips on how to put a talk together, because there is that anxiety as well. It's like, I, I have a talk, but I don't know if my, my, uh, the, the thing that I want to talk about is a good thing, or yeah. I don't know if my slides are good. I don't know if I know uh, how to actually convey the message. So. We would love to help you with that. And I won't be the one giving the workshop. There is a proper person there that's been, um, that has experience on doing that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I've done the workshop though, and it's a, it's a great workshop. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and then I have a few other extras though. Can I, can I just go on? Yeah. Yeah. Cover cool. as many as you want. As many as you got. <laughs> cool. So then I also found, uh, I don't know how many newbies we have listening to us today. Uh, but for people that, since we're talking a lot about data science as well, there's a bunch of data scientists and other people around that don't really know how to deal with uh, Git. And even for me as a person, my personal experience with Git initially was so hard. Yeah. It's Why do I have to a... commit it twice? Why do I have to do that? I just want to commit it. It's, <laughs> what's this push about? And then what do you mean? Where am I? <laughs> yeah. I am here in front of my computer. <laughs> um, yeah. So if you want to learn Git, um, there is this website called learningbranching.js.org uh, that gives you a step-by-step -step with a visual manual of how to actually get Git done. 
Uh, so you have like the lessons, so you can click on the lessons and then it gives you like an explanation uh, with some best practices and then gives you snippets of code as well. So you have like a, a thing that kind of like moves. Um, mm -hmm. It's, yeah, it's quite like straightforward and it's, it's quite interesting. I don't know what happened here. Uh, my computer, I think, stopped working. Um, Anyhow, so it's it's very interesting and it's a very visual way of learning um, Gitch. So if you're struggling with Gitch and you don't have time to read the book, uh, actually, first thing, read the book. Chapter, I think chapter 10 of the Gitch book is the most important one. It teaches you the main things that you need to know. Um, but if you don't have time to do that, then uh, if you want to train a little bit um, with a GUI, just this is the most straightforward thing that I found around. Oh, that is, yeah, that's cool. I like how it's like a little fake shell. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And if everything was working, I could show you the like you have. So you do, you, you click here and it's like, it's very GUI based. But then as soon as you get out of this thing, you need to train to pass the, 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 the face because it's kind of like a game. Okay. Then you need to type it. Um, so like you Oh, I see. So it has you do some kind of branch thing. Or yeah. check out, and then it watches to make sure that, say, the branch was created or something, huh? Yes, yes. Like you have huh? a check. Um, it's it's quite interesting, and it's 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 quite good for learning. Yes, here. Oh, yeah, nice. The if we could fake, now we're good. I don't know what's going on. I'm sorry, <laughs> but it's no worries. It looks cool. It's a good suggestion. People can check that out in the show notes. The yeah. So yeah, I, I like the visuals. This is the one, so you can you can type, let's say, git commit, uh, and it's here. You can see what happens, and it tells you. So, oh, okay, wow. so you did a commit, and this is what yeah, and this is what happens, and then um, you can go back to the instructions if you don't get it. It's it's quite interesting. And oh, then nice. just to close the extras, um, so I started coding with Python uh, for a very short period of time, and then I switched when I started IT. I switched to Java and then I did a few years of Java and then I went back into Python. But then when I went back into Python, I was like, uh, well, I know Java now and what's going on? What, what is this language that is not verbose at all? And you can do whatever you want with it. How do you, how do you <laughs> do no rules. What's happening? Exactly. <laughs> what's the story? Um, and I struggled a lot to find a straightforward tutorial and a straightforward manual that would tell me, so this is the comparison, this is what Python does, the Java doesn't do, or this is how to do things in Python, and this is how to do things in Java, this is the comparison, and blah, blah, blah. So then um, I found uh, this real Python article that was just, just being published, I think, maybe a few weeks ago. I wish it was around when I started, but it wasn't. <laughs> Yeah, it's only um, like five days old or seven days old or something. So yes, yes. Uh, so it tells you like very straight in a very straightforward way the differences, the similarities between the two languages, mm -hmm. and um, talks about the Python data types and talks a little bit about as well um, the the Zeno Python and how we do things in Python and how we do things in Java and then standard library um, and then comments as well as about apps and tutorials and documentation. So it's very, very, very interesting if you're starting with Python coming from a Java background. Nice. Yeah, that's cool. I think using your existing skills to level up is a much better way. Like I would know, I want to know how to talk to a database. I can do that in Java. How do I do that in Python? Oh, I see. Okay, now I got it, right? 
Yes. <laughs> cool, cool. All right. I got a few extras, as all everyone may imagine. First, a quick follow-up. For people who are getting started with Git and you want some more help, consider using oh my Z shell. Uh, why? Because if you go into a Git repository here and you type Git, you can hit tab. It'll give you all the top level features of Git. So like branch, clone, checkout, uh, commit, whatever. So if you type Git branch and hit tab though, it'll actually list, give you tab autocomplete and arrow autocomplete for all the existing branches, for example, and stuff. So if you're having a hard time on the terminal and you want some help, you can just do Z shell and it'll actually give you like super deep autocomplete on the terminal, even into say your project structure, your repo structure. So that's cool. Don't go there without that. Um, but for my actual things, I gave a talk at uh, FlaskCon. So that talk is up, which is really cool. It was on HTMX and Flask and Jinja partials and things like that. So people can check that out. That's good. Brian, I've talked about why Firefox is awesome and people should be using it more and not letting it <laughs> fade into oblivion as everyone thinks Chromium is the, the core that we should all be building on. And they just came out with a really cool idea called RL Blocks that would be applicable to other browsers as well. So one of the problems with web browsers is they, they accept all sorts of input from random strangers on the internet, which is generally not a good idea for security, right? And it's not just the browser, it's the plugins. So you've got uh, things like um, the AUG format or Wolf is a font uh, parsing library and all these different things that you might need to run inside the browser, but you really get them from somewhere else, right? So for example, if there's a problem with say the AUG parser and you load an AUG file, then you know the browser gets hacked into. And there's things they've been doing to try to s s uh, restrict that with like sandboxes and stuff. So this thing, this this thing, I'll just give a quick shout out to Rblox. What they're doing is insane. As somebody who does a little C++, tell me what you think about this. So what they do is they use the um, LLVM or no Clang here. They use Clang and they take these libraries like Aug, they compile them to WebAssembly. And then there's another thing called WebAssembly to C and they compile it back to C and then they compile it into the system as if they hadn't done anything to it which sounds weird, right? Why would you <laughs> do that? But what it does is it strips out a bunch of um, intermediate steps where viruses could live and yeah. uses WebAssembly to like put those checks as part of the system and then puts it back into C. Okay. Yeah, so oh, anyway, right. this, is a, this is a pretty wild thing that they came up with. So just worth a, a quick checking out. And then, Liz, you mentioned this uh, Log4j thing. Yes. We're all going to be suffering from this for so long. This is so mm. bad. So it turned out that log4j, the problem with log4j is, let me let me describe this in Python terms and, uh, and just see what you all think. So log4j has this ability to parse the, the strings you put into the logs. So I want to log out a message, but instead of actually getting a user, like say, instead of going to the to the code and getting, say, the machine name or the IP address that I'm on, I can put like a little symbol in the log file and log4j will go, oh, what you need is you want me to say, pull in the IP address locally and then write that in the log. That's maybe okay. They also have this ability to run code that they don't know. I mean, you did some Java. They know have this ability to run code, not in the local class library, but on a remote machine somewhere else out on the internet <laughs> called, um, was it JNDI, J-D-N-I? I don't always swap the order. 
Well, it turns out you can put the JD and I run code symbol into your log file, and then the log message will result in running code from anywhere on the internet in the process of your thing that's trying to log. And it can come from anywhere. It is so bad. If it's in a header file, if it's in the URL, if it's in the email address where you expected email address, you put in like dollar bracket JNDI colon some path to the virus. Literally the attempt to say this user with this email address failed to log in results in running the virus. It's anything that you may ever log, user agents, like you name it, run virus remotely in this process. (laughs) And anything you might want to log and you're typically logging bad input so you can log attempts to hack your system. There were like 850,000 hack attempts within <laughs> the first couple, like day or two of this. It is, it's going to be not good, which made me think of just a, a quick little fun comment here of an XKCD that someone put on Twitter after this, because it's all about this log4j that's not really funded. So um, all modern digital infrastructure is like this Jenga tower. And then at the very bottom, it's a project some random person in Nebraska has been thanklessly maintaining since 2003. Pull that out, it all comes down. Yeah. So that's the world we live in. Yeah. Yeah. Especially <laughs> because, yeah, there was this 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 thing, this movement on Twitter of people just blaming the Log4j <clears throat> developers about it. And uh, some other people just yeah. show up and say, well, they haven't been getting paid for all the work that they're doing and everybody's yeah. using the, the application all uh, throughout. So um. there's certainly uh, a conversation to be had about how much energy and time should be, these large companies be putting into supporting open source stuff, right? And it's I think there's so many little things like Log4j that nobody feels like they're using. Sure, their web framework might use it, but they don't actually want to use it. It just happens to be what their web framework shows. But they are built on top of it as they're learning. I'm sure there are many sleepless nights on this. I don't know. Not good. As a Java person, what do you think about this? <laughs> As a representative I... of all Java. Yes. <laughs> no pressure at all, right? No pressure whatsoever. <laughs> I can say as someone that has worked for open source for a while now, uh, that there is a big discussion to be had on that. Um, But there is also a big discussion to be had on how do we want open source to be sustained um, from now on? Because the way that it's going is not sustainable when we all know it. And we have big companies and we don't don't even need to name the big companies, but we have really big companies. They have have been using and are starting now to to do open source projects simply because it's good for business Um, because it gets people hooked into what they're doing and then, well, you're going to have to use our open source packet now and that's us taking the market. Um, But we need open source to be at least a tiny bit more sustainable because the way it's going, it's not, it's not good for anyone. Yeah. Uh, I guess one final thought on this. This was not a bug that was found. This was a feature that was used in a way that people didn't expect. I can expand variables. I can run remote code. I can run expanded remote code. Oops. All right. Uh, but let's bring it back to Python with a joke. What do you guys think? Yeah. All right. Guys, uh, you got the first joke. Hit us yes. with this one. So um, we were talking about virtual environments and how much fun it is to set up Python and use all your virtual environments because you have, well, fans and pipans and condas and everything else uh, and how much everyone always complains about having to set up their environment before installing python so i found this 
And so apparently this would be society if you didn't have to use virtual MC style <laughs> Python packages. And it would be but, wonderful. Let me try to describe this for the world who is just listening. It's like the most idealistic, futuristic view of the world. We've got like monorails and there's just shining silver spaceships zooming through the sky. And, and uh, it just looks like, oh yeah, here's the perfect future we all dreamed we were supposed to have. Yes, that everyone, everyone types Python, everyone knows Python, uh, <laughs> but they don't have to use virtual apps to install their packages. Imagine. Oh, are you telling me that virtual environments denied this from us? No, this is the reason why we can't have these things is because people don't learn virtual environments. That spaceship has its ah. own environment. The oh, little house over there, that's running it. a different okay. version. Yeah, because <laughs> of its environment. That's a good way to look at it, Brian. I like it. <laughs> yeah, me too. Awesome. Brian, always brings the other side of the things where it's like, oh, the data perspective. It's wonderful. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Brian. All right, the joke, uh, the joke I was going to cover is actually that Jenga tower I already showed, so... I'll just leave it at that. Uh, nice. One real quick bit of follow-up here, because I think this will be helpful to people. Jeremy Page says, if you are on bash instead of Z shell, the package bash-completion will also allow git commands, tags, branches, et cetera, to auto-complete. And I never read a book. I just, like, I think I read an article that's like the 10 git commands you need, and I've been good since. Um, so, Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah. Okay, Mr. Waste Kid. I can't. Exactly. And Brandon says you don't need virtual environments if you just set up a new virtual machine for every project. That's true. Yeah, Docker <laughs> will save the world. <laughs> That's right. I agree. Docker, we could have the same picture with Docker, but they'd all just be cubes just flowing around. Be cubes, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, pack it so like that with those containers, everywhere. shipping containers everywhere. There's also with the wings. pragmatic. <laughs> exactly. The pragmatic Mario says, I click buttons on VS Code. <laughs> Go, gooey. <laughs> click buttons. All right, Brian, you want to take us out of here? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, let's. Uh, thanks, everybody, for uh, showing up for the, the show. And uh, it was really a lot of fun. Um, thanks, Lays, for, sorry, Lays, for showing up. It's been great. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And thank you for the invite again. It was a pleasure.